what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. If you had to make a list of the world's greatest living poets, if you had to, that's a, that's a weird thing to have to do. But you know what? You never know. It might happen. If you had to list the world's greatest living poets, you'd be... It'd be a good thing to put Nikki Giovanni near the top of that list. Nikki Giovanni is an American poet. She came of age during the Black Power and Civil Rights Movements, growing up between Ohio and Tennessee. Her poetry has been described as filled with the spirit of revolution. Take a listen and see what I mean. This is not a poem, no. It is a celebration for the road we have traveled. It is a prayer for the roads yet to come. This is an explosion, the original Big Bang. This is about us celebrating ourselves, and a well-deserved honor it is. Light the candles. This is a rocket. Let's ride. That's from a new HBO Max documentary about Nikki. It's called Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni Project. It shows every step of her rise to becoming one of the best-known, kind of only-known poets in America. From a big break at the Birdland Jazz Club in New York to sitting down for these legendary TV conversations with the civil rights icon and writer James Baldwin to, and this is real, her love of space travel and her real dreams of going to Mars and the moon. I think more than anything, when you listen to this conversation, you'll hear that even though Nikki Giovanni is this like big time celebrity poet, she's still a bit of an enigma and full of surprises. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, Tom. Thank you so much. Congratulations on this documentary. It must be a strange thing. I'm I'm really thrilled. I think they did an, an extraordinary job. And I've seen it three times. And I keep saying what I really want to do is sit down with a glass of champagne at, at home and watch it. I've been seeing it with audiences. And, you know, just kind of look alone. Yeah. You know how you look at things differently when you're you're by yourself or with you. In my case, I'll, I'll be with my dog. Her name is Cleopatra. And have Cleo and I just sit there and see how she responds to it. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. I mean, like when you're watching it with an audience, it, it, you're very aware of the audience and it doesn't feel as like intimate and you can't really quite take it in in the same way. But when you sit down and watch it by yourself, you're able to take it in differently. Right. I'm a poet and I've, I've been working on stage for, I don't know, 50 years. I'm 80 years old now. But you're not used to seeing yourself on screen. You know, you're looking at yourself, you're 25 years old. You think, my goodness, who is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, where did where did that person come from? <laughs> right. Um, another thing that comes, I mean, you mentioned you're, you're 80 years old and you've been, you know, you've been on stage and, and, and talking for 50 years now. You know, one of the things that comes uh, over time as well is, I don't know, a certain a different sense. I mean, like, you're obviously really well known as this truth teller, but I've also heard you talk about how it's only kind of later uh, in your life, it's taken a while for you to share certain parts of your life publicly, you know, specifically about maybe your, your younger years. If you don't mind me asking, what, what was behind that re- reluctance? I think that any writer, frankly speaking, I, I don't think it's just me, there, there are decisions that you make about yourself. And, and in my case, I decided I, I did not want to be unhappy. And the only way to handle that was to put some of the unhappiness of my parents' marriage 
away. And then as I got older, and and the older you get, you begin to realize, oh, this is what happened, or that is what happened. And you begin to learn things, and as you learn things, uh, like any artist, you share them. And so I think that's that's really just uh, learning more about yourself, uh, because there are no secrets. I mean, one thing that uh, this generation actually teaches us is that there, there's no secrets. There's very little privacy, but there's no secrets. And so once you understand that, you know, you're not hiding something, but you're trying to make sense out of it before you talk about it. Otherwise, you become whiny. And I'm not, I'm not whiny. I don't want to be whiny. Tell me a little bit about when poetry first came into your life. Well, you know, you hear stories when your mother recognizes um, her pregnancy that she's carrying you. She and her girlfriends particularly start to tell stories. Oh, you're carrying her to the left, so that's going to be a girl. Or you're carrying her to the right, so that's going to be a boy. Or, oh my goodness, you know, look, look at you're carrying her high, so she's going to be tall. So the first story you hear, you don't even know you're hearing it, but you are in your mother hearing stories. And of course, the minute that you make your your debut here in America, here in in life, in 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 the form that you're going to be, you're hearing stories. People are telling you stories about who you are and how much trouble you were or how glad people are that you're here. You hear stories. And some of those stories become poems. Some of those stories become paintings. Some become dances. It depends on what you're doing with it. But you hear stories all of your life. It's like you hear songs. When when did those stories in your own life turn into poems? Like when did, when did the poetry thing start for you? Oh, I, I think that I've always liked to read. And if you like to read, that means you like you like stories. And I love libraries. Uh, my latest book is called A Library. And I, I like to see what people are doing with words and with images. I couldn't begin to say, you know, June 3rd, I remember. You know, it's, it, it's nothing like that. It's that you, you're always hearing these stories and you're remembering some of them. And uh, they're delighting you. And you want to give that delight back. Did you get any indication early on that you had an aptitude for it? No, uh, <laughs> and don't laugh, Tom. What I got early on in terms of aptitude was that I didn't have an aptitude for anything else. Right. I, I couldn't play the piano. I never did learn that I couldn't sing. I couldn't dance. I'm not athletic. When you can't do anything else, you turn to art. You turn to writing. <laughs> I think if you talk to any of the writers, you find out they were all useless. And so what do you do? You, you watch the people who do. And then you write about the people who are doing the things that perhaps you even wish you could do. But the writers are, are we, we're stuck. We don't, we don't know how to do anything else. Some of us are good cooks, but I know quite a few writers who are not even good cooks, but they're excellent writers. So if they couldn't write, I don't know what would happen to them. They'd, they'd starve. <laughs> no, their friends would take care Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, let me take a, st- a step back here for a second. You grew up in Tennessee and Ohio. You came of age during the civil rights era, during the Montgomery bus boycott, the Freedom Rides. Looking back, did you see your poetry as a reflection of that movement? Of course. I, I saw it as a duty, actually, but uh, not not a hard or difficult duty, but as a duty to, to, to keep track, I guess is the term I'm, I'm looking for, to keep track of this is what is happening. I've often wondered, as has any black American, I imagine, what kind of slave would I have been? But my question for white Americans is, but what kind of master would you have been? And I think that's a legitimate question. So I write about the difficulties 
of being segregated against, of being abused. But I think sometimes it might be interesting for white Americans to write, and I, I think it would be difficult, but maybe not, what kind of master would you be? I think that's a legitimate question. And I think it's one of the reasons that a lot of people like to ban books. And, uh, you know, we're looking at some of the governors up there. Well, we don't want these, we don't want these stories told. These stories have to be told because, you know, you have to ask yourself, what would I have been? What kind of person? Who would I be if I encounter those unlike me? Met an old man on the road late afternoon. Hat pulled over to shade his eyes. Jacket slumped over his shoulders. He told me, girl, my hands seem more than all them books they got at Tuskegee. Smiled at me, half waved his hand, walked on down the dusty road. I met an old woman with a corn cob pipe, sitting and rocking on a spring evening. Sister, she called to me, let me tell you, my feet seem more than your eyes ever gonna read. Smiled at her and kept on moving. You know, there's a card, my favorite, one of my favorite cards. It's just a card. You can purchase it any place. It says, teaching your, your child not to step on a caterpillar does as much for your child as it does the caterpillar. And I've always loved it. I, I have bunches. I, I, I buy it by the box and I send it out to friends. Because, yeah, the caterpillar is just going to die. And the caterpillar, this fool's going to step on me. Yeah. But it teaches your child it's okay to step on something that's underneath you, that's that's mm-hmm. smaller than you, that might could use your help. But more, if you leave the caterpillar alone, it will become a butterfly. And look at that. Look at the joy just watching a butterfly brings. So, you know, there you, you have to ask, who would I be if I could be my better person? Can you tell me the story? Your first big break is kind of legendary. And I mentioned this in the in the introduction, you know, and, I, and when I brought it up, the, the, you do in the gig of Birdland, I saw you laughing when I did it. And I actually can, I can see you kind of laughing about it now. Tell me the story about launching a book at the very famous Birdland Jazz Club. It was actually my second book, uh, Black Judgment. And my mother was a jazz fan. And I thought, oh, I want to do something for mommy. Birdland is, is, is a major jazz club, was a major jazz club at that point. And I went uh, down to to uh, to Birdland, yet it was downstairs. And here in New York, it was down. And I went down, and uh, the, the man who owned it was uh, Harold Logan, and he actually owned it with Wilson Pickett. One, two, three. One, two, three. And I know everybody knows Mr. Pickett because he was a big singer. In those days, New York, your club was closed on Sunday. And I said, well, since your, your club is going to be closed on Sunday anyway, I'd like to have a book party here, you know. And he said, <laughs> he said well, how much are you going to pay me? And I said, oh, Mr. Logan, I, I don't have any money. I'm a poet. <laughs> Where do you think I get money? And I said, what do, what do you need? And he thought about it for a minute because I guess he said to himself, you know, this fool is coming down here asking me for my club. <laughs> you know. And he said, all right, Giovanni, bring 100 people and you can have the club. 
99 people, and you'll owe me $500. I said, thank you. Yes, sir, that's a, that's a deal. And I stood up and we shook hands. If I, if I don't bring in 100 people, but I figured I can bring 100 people to do anything. And we really worked, I say we, but I, I really worked uh, very hard. Um, my next door neighbor at that point, by the way, was uh, Morgan Freeman. He wasn't a big star then, but he was coming to be one. And uh, Novella Nelson, Barbara Antier. And I just asked all of my friends, will you come and read? And I, I said to mommy, you know, come up to New York and we're going to have a, a show. Because she'd never been to Birdland, even though she's a jazz fan. And we had the show at Birdland. And it was wonderful because people started coming. Of course, it was free, which is the other smart thing, if I do say so myself. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the smart move right there, for sure. Get, get 100 people in if they don't pay any cover. Yeah. yeah. And we came, the people started to come, but the New York Times at that time was over. Birdland was one place at time was up, up above it. And uh, they started to see people coming and people were lined up. And then, then people turned the corner. I think that's when they turned the corner is what got the Times attention. And they sent a uh, reporter down and he, that was too funny because he was asking people in the line, you know, Who's Nicky? Who's Nick Giovanni? He, Nick Giovanni. Where's Nick Giovanni? And he finally got to me. He said, I'm looking for Nick Giovanni. Do you know him? <laughs> I'm Nicky Giovanni. No, no, I'm looking for Nick Giovanni. I said, no, I, I can't help you. I'm not a Giovanni that I know. And uh, of course, he realized that I was Nicky Giovanni. But I made the front page of the extra section. And uh, that was uh, incredibly helpful to to my career. What, what, did, you, what did your mom make of it? Oh, mom was mom. It was thrilled because she also got to meet uh, Nina Simone. No and way! I, I think that uh, her heart probably never stopped beating. All right. She lied, She drank coffee. She drank tea and then go home. She lied, She lied, Dressed in green. Wear silk stockings with golden seams. See Lamoma. See Dressed in red. I love talking to people who came up in like the 60s and the 70s and all that stuff because they guarantee you they'll always drop some name which is just unbelievable to me that they got to meet them. Yeah, yeah, my mom got to meet Nina Simone. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to my conversation with Nikki Giovanni at 80 years old. She is a living link to a generation of artists who came up during the civil rights era, used their talents to join the movement and fight for black dignity. Her friends included James Baldwin and Nina Simone, who you're hearing right now. Nikki Giovanni didn't just write poetry in isolation. She's highly influenced by the artists around her, highly influenced by pop culture. I mean, she's even been nominated for a Grammy. This next part of our conversation is going to look at Nikki Giovanni's legacy in music and pop culture, how she's still writing books for children, still promoting hip-hop, still collaborating with jazz musicians, uh, including the saxophonist Javon Jackson. I'll let Nikki pick up the story from here. I've been working with uh, Javon Jackson, who is a uh, saxophonist who worked with Art Blakey. And Javon and I are always trying to figure out who knows more songs. And of course I do, because my mother knew every every jazz song. And so Javon will start playing something and I know all the words. He said, how do you know all the words? I said, I listen to my mother, which is, is the truth. And we, we laugh about that. We did a CD together. I can't sing. And uh, when I met Javon, we were talking. He's very nice. And we both like spirituals. And he said, oh, I was thinking about doing a, a CD of spirituals. 
And I said, oh, I'd love to work with you. And we, you know, I like spirituals because you don't have to sing. People sing spirituals, they can't sing. But we were talking, I said, well, there's there's a spiritual that Nina Simone loves so much, but it isn't actually a spiritual. It's Night Song. Mm. And it's the uh, theme from Golden Boy. And I said, but I would, I would like Javon because she became a, a, a dear friend to sing Night Song for Nina. Because as you know, Nina's gone. And I said, I can't really sing. And he said, oh, don't worry. A lot of people making records can't sing. (laughs) I I knew that we were the same. (laughs) Summer, not a bit of breeze. Neon signs are shining through the tired trees. Walking to and fro Everyone has someone And a place to go So uh, a, f- a few years into your life in New York, you, you become a mom, and you start to write books for children. What do you like the most about writing books for, for children? Well, this is a foundation, first of all. Uh, if, if we didn't write books for children, if children didn't hear the stories, they wouldn't grow up to appreciate and add to it. You know, once you have a kid, you have to talk to them at some point. There's a wonderful picture. It's one of my favorite pictures of my son and me, where uh, we are sitting on the floor, and uh, I'm reading to him. My favorite books are children's books. When I go into a bookstore, the first uh, section I go to is a children's section, just to see what's out and who's doing it, you know, and the why, what is now called YA, which is young adult. I, I really like to see how are we building a, a reading community? How are we allowing children, that's so important, allowing youngsters to pick their own books and to read them because you can't, you cannot corrupt the innocent. And everybody's like, well, I don't want them to read about this and that. But if they don't know anything about it, there's nothing to be read. <laughs> and people don't want to, they don't want to deal with that. You don't teach with reading. You, you, reading allows them to be a part of what they are already in, involved in or what they're already interested in. One of the things that they, um, you sort of brought them towards was, was 15 years ago, you wrote a book called uh, Hip Hop Speaks to Children. Yeah. Last year was the 50th anniversary of hip hop. <laughs> and I figure now you might have been in New York when that was all starting. What, what, what do you first remember about hearing about hip hop? Well, the first thing with hip hop is uh, I had a lot to do with helping to, as it were, birth it because I did a concert at uh, Lincoln Center and I did it with a gospel choir and I read poetry over gospel music. I stood on, on the banks of- all I got to do is sit and wait, sit and wait, and it's going to find me. All I got to do is sit and wait, if I can learn how. I think it helped the youngsters to realize, oh, I have a story, and I can say it in rhythm, and it's going to work, and it goes with this song. What I need to do is sit and wait, because I'm a woman, sit and wait. What I got to do is sit and wait, because I'm a woman, it'll find me. 
Now, some hip-hop has changed a lot and will continue yep. to change its vernacular, and all vernaculars change. But I think that, that uh, I was a part of that. It must have been exciting for you to hear all these, these you know, young poets starting to speak <laughs> over music. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled, and it's really funny because it was 50 years or so ago that the, that this started, and now kids have come up to me and said, "Oh, I remember I was reading you, and I was in you know third grade, and you came by my school, and it's like, oh my god, you know, you never think of something being fifty years old, but uh, I think it's it's good that people realize, oh, you can put together things and make another art out of it. Yeah, I tell you, one of my favorite parts of the documentary, Nikki, it was the speech you gave about if you've got talent, then you're lonely. There's a moment where you're giving a speech and you say, if you have talent, anyone in this room has talent, then you, you must be lonely. Anybody that has any talent in this room is lonely. Whether you can sing, whether you can shoot a basketball, whether you can play football, I don't care what it is, you can, if you've got a talent, you're lonely. And so what you want to do is go on with your life because at some point you're going to find somebody who is lonely as you are, and then you will build your community. <laughs> I've never heard anything like that before in my life. How did you land on that? Probably because I grew up lonely. That started with Rudolph, because I'm, I'm a big fan of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And I mentioned that because if, if I had been Rudolph, by the time Santa Claus came, and said, you know, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, you know, and all of that, I would have told Santa Claus to kiss my behind. (laughs) They saw, they being Santa and Mrs. Santa, they saw how lonely Rudolph was because of his red nose. None of the other reindeer would, would, would play with him. And they had nothing to say about it until they needed him. So Rudolph was lonely, but he had this talent. And once that talent was needed, they're going to call upon him. As I said, I I thought that Santa deserved to be cursed out for that. But I wanted to say to the people in the room, you have to remember Rudolph because he knew he was different, but he knew he was special. And he's going to take care of himself. He's not going to let people make him feel bad about being different or looking different or feeling different. He's going to hold on to himself until he finds someone else that feels different. And that's how that is how you build community. That's a beautiful thing. I spent a lot of my life lonely, Nikki, you know, and I, and I didn't realize until then that that's kind of what, what we do, or that's kind of at least what I did, you know? You find people who are lonely in the same way that you are. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Thanks and, for that and it one. Works and and everybody, it, then everybody's happy. Otherwise, you, you're spending your time trying to get people to like you who are stupid and who will never like you and actually who you don't like. And so it's really good to, to recognize, oh, that's a fool's. So I'm not going to be bothered with them. I'm going to wait until I find somebody who I like who likes me. I love, I, ha- I wrote that down. I wrote that down on my phone. I have this little list of like quotes I've picked up over the years on my phone, and that's one of them, you know? What you want to do is go on with your life because at some point you're going to find someone who's lonely like you are, and that's how you build community. I'm Tom Power. More of my conversation with Nikki Giovanni coming up. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? 
I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Today, you're hearing my conversation with one of the world's greatest living poets, Nikki Giovanni. So I figured we should hear some of her poetry. We're going to Mars for the same reason Marco Polo rocketed to China, for the same reason Columbus trimmed his sails on the Dream of Spices, for the very same reason Shackleton was enchanted with penguins, for the reason we fall in love. It's the only adventure. It's Nikki Giovanni with the poem, Quilting the Black-Eyed Pea, or We're Going to Mars. Going to Mars is also the title of a new documentary about her life as a poet. It's streaming now on Crave in Canada on uh, Max in the United States. It's an excellent documentary. I got to see it uh, to get ready for this interview. For someone who spent decades in the public eye inspiring people with her words, Nikki Giovanni has kept a lot of her personal life pretty private. Not a name dropper. She's not interested in stuff like her own celebrity. But she is interested in teaching, sharing her craft and her work with the next generation of poets. You spent a lot of your recent years teaching. If students ask you, like, oh, um, did they call you a professor? Did they? No, they just call me Nikki. Okay. Nikki. When they would say, like, Nikki, you know, how do you have a career in this poetry thing? How do you, how do you become a known poet? Would you ever get questions <laughs> like that? Yeah, you always get those. And I tell them, well, you, if you want to be known and you want to be rich, don't be a poet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, well, that's the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we... Uh, most of the poets we read are, you know, 200 years ago or something. So don't worry about that because then you're going to be trying to, I don't even know if the word sell is going to work, but you're, you're trying to please somebody who will not ever be pleased by you. You need to do what you do with the people that you love and who love you and don't worry about it. That, that's just not, you're not doing art. No artist, no true artist is into the art to be known, or in all fairness, to be rich. We're into art because it's a part of our heart and our soul. And I say that to my students, and I always, I start class with that. When I when I walk into the classroom, first thing is, uh, my name is Nikki. I don't have a weak ego, so Dr. Giovanni and all of that is not necessary. I don't want you bowing and scraping to me. And uh, if if we're lucky, I will remember your name. In many cases, I don't because you were dumb or you said things that annoyed me. But some of you whom I love, and my, my Kwame Alexander was a student of mine, and yeah. he won a new variant. And I'm so proud of Kwame. I really am, I, I, and I really love him. He just won an Emmy for the crossover. The reason that it was fun to teach Kwame is that it was fun for him to learn. He learned, don't worry about tomorrow. Just do today what pleases you, what makes you proud. I talked to Kwame, you know, about you. He said you were tough. He said you were a tough prof. He said he said he didn't think you liked him. Even though I was upset and livid and pushed back, I kept taking her classes, Tom. And that would, it ended up being the best thing that could have happened for me becoming a writer. I like to think that my, my father introduced me to the power of words. My mother made words fun and cool. Nikki Giovanni taught me 
how to make words dance on the page. I know he says that all the time because he got that C. He said, oh, you gave me a C. I said, I didn't give you a C. <laughs> you earned it. <laughs> <laughs> but I am. No, we're, we're good friends yeah, I know, now. I know, and I know. I'm sure. And and I do. I, uh, I I really love him so much because he has used what I had, what I could give to another artist. He has taken and taken the next step. And so I'm very proud. I have other students that I'm, I'm very proud of, too. And I keep in touch with uh, not a lot because uh, I'm not friendly. But those that I do know, we are back and forth in touch. And it's good to, to see that you've helped people take their time. Because art, it's, I was about to say it's like a beer. It has to be, uh, no, it's it's vodka that's distilled, isn't it? Yeah. It it has to be time. You you just can't wake up and say, I'm going to get an agent. I'm going to be rich and famous. You have to take the time to let it grow, to let it, to, to, to decide where you want to go with what you want to do. And I think that's the most important thing. So in the documentary, something that comes up over and over and over again is this very legendary interview you did with the uh, civil rights icon, uh, you know, the great writer James Baldwin. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the excerpts of that conversation are, are played throughout, throughout the film. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not being a missionary trying to save America, <laughs> but I do know that we have paid too much for it to be able to abandon it. I mean, James Baldwin, even then, was such a huge figure in civil rights, such a huge figure in literature. But I think at this stage in 2024... He's, he's become a bit of a mythic figure in, I mean, and a lot of people were so inspired by him who didn't know him or ever or meet him or weren't even around at the same time as him. I always like to find out what these people were actually like. When you were sitting across from him, what's, what struck you about him? Well, Jimmy became a friend. Yeah. But there's also a part of the film that I get asked another question and I say it, my answer, I, I forget what I was saying, my answer was, uh, you're, you're asking me something that I... I'm not going to answer. Fair enough. And uh, Jimmy tells you who he is because he's written enough books. Fair enough. So if you know who Jimmy is, read him. F- fair enough. He asks you in one of those parts, he says, are you a pessimist? No, you, yeah. say, you say I'm a pessimist. And he says, no, you're not. Oh, no, you're not as pessimistic as you think you are. <laughs> no, I'm not pessimistic. I you got far too much energy to be as pessimistic as you think you are. I'm pretty pessimistic. Though. No, I think you're pretty realistic. I think you're pretty cool. Would you have an answer if I asked you, how would you answer that now? Uh, I guess I'm, I'm not a pessimist. I just think that that right now, as we're looking at life on Earth, there's been a big mistake. And I'm not sure that we can correct it. So I'm not sure that we're not the next dinosaurs. You know, I mean, I'll be sorry, but I'm 80 years old, so I'm not going to be whining about it. But uh, humans have not done a good job. We, we haven't done a good job with each other, and we haven't done a good job with our planet. And I am, am not optimistic about that. I am optimistic about life forms on another planet. And that's why I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of black women, because we get along with everybody. And nobody listens to poets. But uh, I, I say that all the time. We, we just got to get some black women up into Mars and, and stuff so that they can prepare us as, as other humans come then we're telling this is the rule. If you're going to be here on Mars, black women run this planet and you got to be nice. <laughs> That's the first. And when you land, I think that should be the first word. Welcome to Mars. You, you got to be nice. You got to be nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've always wanted to go into space. The, the highest I've gotten is 70,000 feet because I was 
able to take this uh, SS, the old supersonic transport, which at 70,000 feet, you can see the curve of the earth. But uh, I wish, and, and there's no way to do it. Uh, I've had uh, lung cancer and uh, they removed my left lung. My doctor, who I always laugh about, but my doctor's crazy because she says anything you have two of, you can get rid of one. And so <laughs> when the, the lung cancer was discovered, uh, it was decided, you know, well, you got two, you got two lungs, you know, what are you going to do? So we got rid of one. But it means that I cannot leave gravity, or I can leave gravity, actually, but I cannot come back because if I come back having missed an intestine like that, uh, they will shift and, and I'll die. But I keep reminding NASA that, well, I'm, I'm going to die one day anyway. I just <laughs> die in space. I'd love to be on a space station. And I think we need to get more artists into space because there, there are things to see. And I know there must be something to feel. They're, they're, artists look differently. And I, I love scientists, but artists look at things differently from science. And I, I would love to just be able to spend a couple of weeks on the space station and just see what I see as a writer. Nikki, um, say no one listens to poets, but it's been lovely to listen to you for the past little while. Thanks so much for making the time. Thank you. That, that was a pleasure. <laughs> That's a pleasure for me as well. Uh, take take care of yourself now. Uh, you're feeling you're feeling all right these days. My, my father had a bad, bad battle of lung cancer too. It was rough, you know. Well, you know, it's uh, I. You will never hear me say. Let me put it this way: You will never hear me say I'm fighting cancer. People say that. You know, I'm gonna. I don't want to fight cancer. I want to live with it. Yeah. And so every morning I wake up, it's, it's, if I were a singer, you know, I'd say, good morning, cancer, you know, and there would be a little limerick that I would go with it. I want to live with it, and I hope to live with it for the next, you know, 10, 15 years. It, it, that works for me. If, if it works for cancer, it works for me. I'm not fighting it. I'm <laughs> we, get, I want us to be friends. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting you that on a T-shirt. If it works for cancer, it works for me. I'll get you that. <laughs> you can sell those online, Nikki, but you can make hey, a few bucks. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> thank you. Take care of yourself. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. One of our greatest living poets, Nikki Giovanni, a new documentary about her life is available now on HBO Max and Crave in Canada. It's called Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni Project. It is excellent. It's been shortlisted for an Oscar nomination. Lots of hopes that it'll show up for the nominations for Best Documentary Feature Film when they come out next week. Uh, Speaking of awards, I don't know if you're watching the Emmys on Monday night, but Fort Erie, Ontario's own celebrity chef, we're very proud of him here in Canada, Maddie Matheson was there uh, accepting an award on behalf of the cast and crew of uh, the show The Bear. He's an executive producer of that show, um, an actor on that show. Um, and I love Maddie, and I'm so glad that Maddie agreed to sit down with us and talk a little bit about that moment, about winning an Emmy, and how we went from the grimy kitchens of Toronto to the stage of the Emmys. Go check that out wherever you got this podcast. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.